Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, my distinct pleasure to welcome you, Annette Gordon-Reed. She received the 2008 National Book Award and 2009 Pulitzer Prize in History for the Hemingses of Monticello, an American family. She's also the author of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, an American Controversy, Vernon Can Read, among other titles. She was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2010. Tonight, she is joined by another highly accomplished historian and her co-author of The Most Blessed of Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of Imagination. Um, Peter Onoff is the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Virginia, where he taught for more than 20 years. He's also the senior fellow at Monticello's Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies. He's a leading scholar of Jefferson and the early American Republic. He's the author, co-author, or editor of numerous books, including Jefferson's Empire, The Language of American Nationhood, The Mind of Thomas Jefferson, and as editor of Jeffersonian Legacies. Truly, we couldn't be in better hands for a discussion about one of the most intriguing founders of our country. Join me in giving a warm Baltimore welcome to professors Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter S. Ona. Would be able to see these people <laughs> on this side here. Okay, I'm going to lean over like this. It's wonderful to be here in one of my old hometowns. I'm a Johns Hopkins graduate, and uh, so I'm a homie. <laughs> Used to live on Mount Vernon Square. And it's wonderful to be here with one of my very best friends in the world, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, and to join forces with her in talking about Thomas Jefferson. It's been a real privilege. Uh, I'm going to let Annette come, get into some of the details about our relationship because I don't do social history, <laughs> so, so I don't understand all this. But uh, uh, I have devoted a lot of years to Jefferson, and uh, I never thought I would actually talk about him as a person. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, the challenge that Annette presented to me some years ago. Mm -hmm. um, Peter and I met in the 1990s. I think it was 1995. I had just written uh, the manuscript for Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy, and I wanted people to read it and vet it and to tell me what they thought of it, um, particularly people who might be hostile to what I was saying. And what I was saying was that historians who'd written about Jefferson and Hemings had given short shrift to the stories that Madison Hemings and Israel Gillette Jefferson, um, another enslaved man at Monticello, said about life at Monticello, namely that Madison was Jefferson's son. Madison and his sisters and brothers were the children of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Other people had said this as well, and historians had disputed this for, for a couple hundred years since the story uh, broke, actually, in 1802. Uh, there were people who were denying it. So I wanted to write a book that talked about the double standard in the treatment of evidence, what white people said was given credibility, what the enslaved people said was dismissed, um, you know, and seeing what could be different about history, the way history could be written in a different way if everybody was treated in an equal fashion. So 
I thought that he was going to be hostile. Now he's, he's no, I seemed, just let her down. I know. I, know, I thought <laughs> he. You see, sometimes when I tell the story, he seems offended because I thought that he would be hostile. But you know, but you know, he yeah. was the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation professor at University of Virginia. He's the successor to Duma Malone. He's the successor to Merrill Peterson. These were the people that I was writing about uh, in my book. So I sent him the manuscript, and he liked it. Um, and he encouraged the University Press of Virginia to publish it. And um, we've been friends ever since then. And we've had this long-running discussion about Jefferson. Long-running, sometimes arguments about Jefferson, sometimes, you know, more just discussions and conversations about what's going on. We, uh, uh, Peter ran sometimes a, in the summers for a long time a symposium at Monticello uh, we called it Jefferson Camp because it was in the summertime and people would come uh, from all over the country to talk about Jefferson and architecture, Jefferson and slavery, Jefferson and politics. And he ran this and sometimes I would come and give you know, talks there. So we've had this long running discussion uh, about Jefferson over the years. And he decided that he wanted to retire um, and he started talking about retiring and this sort of sent me and other people into a panic because, of course, we never want anything to change. We want people to keep doing things exactly the way they always do. Have his wife make nice lemon bars for us when we, you know, uh, come to visit him in, in Charlottesville. But, you know, <laughs> there's a different perspective on that. And so he wanted to retire. And I thought, well, you know, I am thinking about doing, I was going to be doing a two-volume biography of Jefferson. Uh, sort of soup to nuts and just sort of bring slavery, him as a plantation owner, all of this stuff in in a way that I didn't think it had been done before. And I thought, here's an opportunity to fixate on something, to focus on something about keep Jefferson. Keep me alive. Yeah, keep you alive. It's assisted living. Assisted living. <laughs> <laughs> to, to think about Jefferson in a different way. Peter is an intellectual historian. I do social history uh, I write about politics as well, Jefferson and politics. He writes about Jefferson and politics as well, but it's mainly about one of his books is The Mind of Thomas Jefferson, and he's thinking about what Jefferson has written, what Jefferson has read, all those things. And so I said we should get together and yeah. collaborate on well, something, well, and this would help prepare me for the biography. Right, so, that's so how we these got are started. training wheels. and then Training she's wheels. Be, <laughs> uh, I told Annette when she sent me her manuscript, and I didn't live up to her or live down to her expectations that, you know, and I, uh, we're ready for this in the history business. Uh, that is, historians had been working through the history of slavery in the early American Republic. Uh, this was a great period of revisionism, and we were rethinking all of the founders in this light. But, you know, something more than that happened. Of course her book was good. It made the case, but, well, of course, who, who really cares? And he owns all these people. That's what matters, isn't it? Well, I just misunderstood what was going on because this book and the follow-up, the DNA tests that were run as a response to the book, it became something that we historians don't understand in our own time. That is a major cultural event that changed the way people thought about not just Thomas Jefferson, but part of a larger rethinking of our history. And she's responsible for it. And she's, doesn't <laughs> There were other people. Well, but I, I should say as well, the thing that got this go going was 
one of books that Peter edited that was mentioned, Jeffersonian Legacies. Um, they did a conference at Monticello, and he, you, you have no essay in the book. Mm -mm. But he pulled together a series of essays from people who were talking about Jefferson with a frankness, a degree of frankness that uh, had never been before. And I think that this was sort of the beginning. At Monticello, they started to, there's a woman named Cinder Stanton who works there, who is now also retired from Monticello, uh, who started writing about slavery. Uh, there were all these records mm -hmm. about the, the enslaved community. She was editing Jefferson's memorandum books. The books were that sort of, you know, list all of his transactions that he kept from the time he was in his 20s up until his death almost. So a lot of stuff was coming out. That Cinder was doing little articles here, little bits of things there uh, about slavery. So you sort of softened it, things up a bit. Well, we're collaborators. But uh, Annette's work and culminating in her the early phases of her career. She's now in her prime, and this is the beginning of her prime years, and as they describe you in histories in the future. Uh, <laughs> the next thing she did, of course, in the wake of DNA, was to take that interest in the world around Jefferson, which Cinder and other people had begun to work on, and get into it in such incredibly deep detail and meticulously researching her book, The Hemingses of Monticello, which deserved all the awards it got. But one of the things I would say about that book is that as I read it a couple of times, I read it in manuscript, and uh, I disappointed her again. I didn't have many suggestions. I just loved it. Uh, but I did say, and I have thought about it, that it's really one of the best biographies of Thomas Jefferson you could find, even though he's not the subject because you can't understand Jefferson without understanding how he affects other people. And in the world of the Hemingses, reconstructed by Annette, we began to get a sense of how Jefferson himself moved in the world. And so you could say, and I'm a little slow, as she'll agree, I'm a little slow about these things, but it began to be clear over time that you know, maybe we should write about Jefferson the whole life again. Maybe it needs to be recast, or as she will say, rebooted, because she's much younger and hipper than I am, and get him right. And I would say I was intrigued by her offer to join her by the fact that we had come to a moment in Jefferson's studies where it made sense to write a biography uh, we didn't need another same old, same old, as she says, soup to nuts biography. I've been invited to write a biography. It's a commercial proposition. People sell books about the founders. But I'm one of these highfalutin academics. I wouldn't waste my time on telling a story everybody already knows. But this is not a story everybody already knows. And as a way of uh, introducing our book into this discussion, I, I'd say that what we're trying to do is build on the solid foundations that Annette has laid for us a new understanding of his life. It's time to rethink him, but let's not do it on a day-by-day, birth-to-death narrative, the typical biographical chronology. Instead, how would we combine our expertise? How would I, suddenly interested in this man's life, because I never worried about how one thing led to another, because that's so mundane. But now I saw that that was what we needed to do. But how would we do it? Yeah, so 
we started out by talking to each other, stuff, <laughs> things we've been doing now for a couple of decades. Uh, we, even before we put pen to paper, Skyping on a weekly basis, uh, throwing out ideas, arguing with each other, trying to come to some understanding about the best way to proceed. And we came up with the idea of sort of dividing his life, thinking about the, the, the central things that were important to him. And we divided the book into three sections. Uh, the first one is called Patriarch, which goes along with the title, which we'll talk about in a, in a, in a bit. Uh, the second one is Traveler, that takes him outside of Virginia, takes him outside of the United States, and gets him to France and talk about all the influences that happened there, bringing him back to the United States and his time in politics away from Monticello. And the final chapter is about, uh, is called Enthusiast, called Enthusiast, and it's about other things that were important to Jefferson, other things that shaped his life, music, um, visitors, and, and prayers. Uh, so it's a thematic biography. It's not, you know, as you said, he was born and, and sort of marched along. It's roughly chronological, but not a typical biography in that way. And we fixated on this notion of patriarch and the title, Most Blessed of the Patriarch, which our, mm -hmm. our publisher was not at, thrilled with at first because it said it made him sound like some religious figure. Um, and is Which this a book is. about, well, he is in a way, <laughs> but this religious figure, not as opposed to a political, political figure, but most blessed of the patriarchs, if you'll notice, there are quotations around it. That's not us calling him that. That's what he called himself. Um, in a letter to Angelica Schuyler Church, uh, the sister-in-law to Alexander Hamilton of Broadway fame, uh, who, uh, receives Jefferson's letter. He writes to her in 1793. It's after he has sort of gotten beaten up by Hamilton in Washington's cabinet, and uh, Washington sides with Hamilton in the great debates that they had about the direction of the United States. And he says, he sort of, you know, almost like a, like a giving himself, cheering himself up, you know, uh, or you know, bucking himself up to say, you know, I, you know I'm, I don't, I'm not hurt, huh? I'm not hurt. I'm going home. I have my, you know, books to read, my fields to form, and to watch for the labor, the happiness of those who labor for mine, namely enslaved people. And he says, if my daughters join me, I will consider myself um, blessed as the most blessed of the patriarchs. And we sort of thought this notion of patriarch yeah. was a was a good way to sort of get into him because it's an interesting statement coming from the person who is, you know, who, the, the image of the person that, that we all know. He invokes this archaic image of himself as an antediluvian patriarch. He's not asking us to think about him as a modern man looking into the future. He's looking back, and he's imagining that the world of Monticello is a world that over which he exercises a kind of dominion, a benevolent dominion. But it just doesn't seem to work with the idea of his being the iconic Democrat, does it? And that's, of course, what we're trying to do to get you excited about this book, is this title doesn't make any sense. I mean, most publishers want titles to make sense, but we showed them. The Barbary Pirates. <laughs> <You got it. laughs> Jefferson and the Barbary Pirates. Thomas Jefferson, another biography. Mm -hmm. There's just another one. Yeah. Right. So we, we thought that was an idea to play with because, as Annette suggested, Annette uh, uh, Jefferson, I confused the two, was going home 
What does home mean to Jefferson? Why does he insist that this is the place he's really happy? When we know, and he admits it later in life, when I'm home too long I get bored, because the fact is, he's a political animal. And it's, that's actually not the right way to put it. He's not a mere politician. He lives for his project, his project of nation-making. This is what moves him. And he's really unhappy when he comes home from uh, his tormented career in Washington's cabinet. But one of the things he's telling us here, or I should say he's telling himself, and it's a lie, is that there is a complete and absolute difference between his private world, home, that sacred place, the only place where people really understand him because they take their orders from him, and the public world of politics, which is miserable. He keeps telling us how miserable politics makes him. People are always fighting and disagreeing, undercutting him. He's losing policy battles, and it's very upsetting for him. But this is the basic insight of our book, which we'll try to explain in the next few minutes. That doesn't mean you don't have to buy it. Uh, the basic insight is that you cannot distinguish the private from the public, and the significance of that is that you might understand his ideas, his public life and professions much better if you saw how they came out of his private life. He's not impenetrable. He's not a sphinx. He's not impenetrable. And the critical thing is home. Home is Virginia. Virginia is a slave society. His first memory is being handed up on a pillow, he says, to an enslaved person. He's making a journey from his home, Shadwell, to a Tuckahoe plantation where he's going to live uh, up until the time he's around nine. His last, one of the last people that he sees is a man named Burl Colbert, who when he's on his deathbed, uh, he says something and nobody in the room understands what he's saying except Burl Colbert. He wants to be lifted higher on his pillows. Uh, Burl comes over, lifts him up, and he closes his eyes and he has a drink of water. He closes his eyes and then he never wakes up. So from birth to death, the people who are around him, the people that he relies on for his comfort at Monticello, uh, for his livelihood, are enslaved people, enslaved African Americans. And so you can't understand him. I think a lot of times, one of the interesting things that's happened with the reviews, most of the reviews have been very good. The Wall Street Journal was eh, not so good. They, they didn't like it. But you could tell the title was, it's all, everything is about slavery. And so that was the, the big indictment of the book. And it's Do you think not, he actually read the book? Do I think he read the book? No. I, I don't think, because, well, if he read it, the book is not all about slavery. But what's different about this book is that we talk about slavery throughout the book. It's not the main part of each chapter, but it, it comes in. And usually when you write books like this, there's a chapter called slavery. And, and slavery. And, <laughs> yeah, and slavery, so everybody can skip that and go on to the <laughs> politics and other stuff. You can't. He, I, I bet he was annoyed because a title called Music, how are enslaved people going to come into that? Or Politics, how are they going to come into that? They're not the prime, well, we do have a, a yeah, chapter called Plantation, which is about, you know, the plantation. But slavery is a part of his life all throughout his life because that's the way it was in real life. I mean, it wasn't separated out in a way that, you know, only this is happening to me. Even when he's in Washington, 
he's worried about or knows about stuff that's going on at the plantation. He's making decisions about, Afri about African-American slaves' lives. This is all throughout it. So, you know, the, the thought that it's all about slavery comes from the fact that, that anything that's about slavery annoys some people. Um, so we figure that in order to know Jefferson, you have to know something about that, mm -hmm. well, the society that formed him, and it was a slave society that formed him. And another important thing we think, and it goes along with this distinction that he insists on between private and public, is that is suggested by our subtitle, Empire of the Imagination, where we try to answer the question, how could he be such a visionary as he is seen to be? And one of the ways to think about it is that up on his hill, a very strange place to build a plantation house, up on that hill, he sees far into the future. He's a, a grand visionary who sees, as he says in his inaugural address, land enough for the thousandth to the thousandth generation. This man is not thinking about tomorrow. He's thinking about the future, the far future. And one of the ways to think about a visionary is a visionary overlooks much in order to see far. And one of the th reasons why that central section about traveler is so important to us is that the things that matter most to Jefferson become clear to him when he is not at home, when he is in France, when he gets a new perspective on the American Revolution, on what's happening in Virginia. No longer is he a frustrated reformer who wants to pass laws that will establish a new code of laws for Virginia, who wants to disestablish the Anglican Church, who wants to do all those grand things that a, a young, enlightened reformer would do, and he's frustrated by his fellow Virginians, but he goes to France, and there he begins to look afar across the ocean and to look up close at the old world. And this is the most fundamental reason why this southern planter, you say, well, how did he ever get that ability to see a better, different world? How could he look beyond Virginia? And the reason is he left Virginia. And it's that experience of the provincial Virginian, desperate to get into the big world, which he was as a young man before the revolution. His plan was to do the grand tour, uh, to go to Britain, the center of his world, but then when he gets there, after the revolution, independence meant everything for him. July 4th, 1776 was, in a way, his own birthday. And then he looks back, and this is when his ideas come into clearer focus, when he's not there. Yes, when he leaves, he has his wife has died in 1782, which was a shattering experience for him. Uh, he had been governor during the Revolutionary War, and that hadn't gone very, very well. Uh, an inquiry was called into his behavior, you know, did he call out the militia in time or whatever. He was actually exonerated, but this stung him, this embarrassed him, it hurt him. And so when he goes to France as a traveler, he's in a way sort of escaping a really, really bad situation, and he's down on Virginia and fellow Virginians. He gets to Paris, and he sees the society, some things he loves, the music, the architecture, the food, the wine, all those things he loves, but there are other things about the society, women, the women who are out sort of in public life, who They're are injecting scary, themselves, scary, scary women, women, the scary women who, 
you know, he says that you know, he compares them uh, Amazons. He calls them Amazons to to American angels who are domestic and take care place. of their family. You know, take care of their their um, uh, their their children and their husband, not out in you know, not out in the streets. And in the streets, oh, you know what happens in the streets. In the streets, when women were not supposed to, you know, walk unescorted out in the streets. So he's talking about being in the streets means almost like you're like a, a prostitute in a way. Um, so it, it, that life just frightens him. And so there are things that he admires about French society, but the family, the organization of uh, the relationships between males and females, mothers to children, those kinds of things right. absolutely appall him. And he begins to sort of idealize America. It's like you go to a foreign country, you complain about this country, and then you go somewhere else and spend time, and you think, eh, maybe, you know, it's not so bad. Uh, it's not as bad as I thought. He gets there, and he goes with James Hemings, uh, who is his wife. So if people don't know this, Jefferson marries uh, Martha Wales, uh, Skelton. She was a, a widower. Uh, Martha Wales' father, John Wales, was not only her father, he was the father of six children by a woman named Elizabeth Hemings. So Jefferson's wife and Sally Hemings and her, her siblings are half-siblings. Half so James is over with him and his eldest daughter, Martha. James goes there. He brings James over to teach him, to have him taught how to be a chef. And then later on, Sally Hemings escorts his younger daughter to Paris. She was not supposed to go. Actually, the daughter was supposed to be brought over by an older woman, but she's sent over. Uh, she's 14 at the time to be sort of, she's the nursemaid to a nine-year-old, uh, which was not an unusual kind of a companion more uh, to uh, Jefferson's nine-year-old daughter. So he's in a house with enslaved people, people who are enslaved in Virginia, but in France have a different legal status, who have the capacity to gain their freedom. Everybody who petitioned for freedom in France in the 18th century, the petitions were granted in Paris. So she had a chance to be free, and James did as well. He begins to pay them, pay them wages, and they treats them more like servants uh, in this household. Mm -hmm. So here, he, there are people he knows as enslaved people because he's known them since they were small. There are people whom he owns by law, but he's in a place where Virginia law doesn't speak. Jurisdiction, law speaking, it didn't speak in France. France had its own understanding about slavery and freedom and so forth. So he, there's enslaved people, but they're in a different category. He treats them differently. He, as I said, is paying them. They have somewhat free movement, and they're staying there with him. He see, begins to see himself as a benevolent master. He probably always thought of himself that way, but this reinforces it because the people that he's dealing with are his wife's siblings, and he's treating them very differently. He has a different connection to them than he does the people you know, back home down the mountain. So they become mm -hmm. the faces of slavery for him. So the combination of looking at French society, which has a terrible problem with peasants. The peasants are starving. They actually end up, obviously, in a revolution by the time he, he leaves, which he welcomes. So the dire economic, economic situation in Paris, the status of peasants who are starving, hanging out with, being around James and Sally Hemings, 
and at some point, beginning a connection to Sally Hemings, we could talk about what that was or was not, change him, sort of give him a different sense of himself as a slave owner. So the person who is really adamant about emancipation before he goes to France, the person who sees master and slave as in a state of war, he said slavery is a state of war between the owners and, and, and uh, the people who are enslaved. He comes back and he has a different view about that. He, he thinks he can ameliorate slavery. He thinks he can make slavery better. And of course, once you start doing that, saying that I'm going to be a good slave master, that's a recipe for disaster. That means you're not, the, the fire that had been there as a young man is out and he concentrates on what he could do on his plantation. And when Jefferson had been a young man, on his list of things to do that were urgent, ending slavery was at the top of the list because that's a dangerous institution. You have an enemy in your midst. So the state of war that Annette's talking about is really critical for Jefferson's big thoughts about slavery and the ultimate solution, which would be emancipation and expatriation or colonization, or we might say deportation, removing these people because they don't belong here. And this is one of the reasons why, even in his anti-slavery period, Jefferson makes us uncomfortable, because his solution is, we are delighted to say, not our solution but it made sense to him at the time, and it's precisely because he first thought about slavery. He reminisces in 1814 in a letter to a young neighbor, when in colonial days, before we fought for our own independence, we thought of our enslaved people, and he didn't say enslaved people, as livestock, like horse, horses, cattle. They didn't have any, he knew they were people, he always knew that, but he didn't understand that they could possibly have any will of their own, that this institution was in some perverse sense natural to him. Well, he, he, he woke up during the revolution because he could see how black men and women could fight for their freedom, could join the British against the patriots. This is a discomforting way to think about the American Revolution. It's white Americans against the British, their British brethren against the merciless savages that are unleashed on the frontiers and against servile insurrection. That's why Jefferson comes up with this idea of his solution for slavery. But what Annette's getting at, and this is one of the, her great contributions to our understanding, it begins with her book about the Hemingses, is that what makes it possible for Jefferson to live with slavery? We like to ask the question, Oh, did he have trouble getting to sleep at night? Was he tormented by slavery? You could say on the pages of notes on the state of Virginia, there is the expression of a kind of a torment. He's worried that the wheel of justice might turn and it would be black over white. War could lead to any number of outcomes. But when he's overseas, and this is what Annette was saying, I'm just going to repeat that because I think it's central to our argument. Not only does he see that American families are good and much more wholesome and natural, that word natural keeps coming up. This is the way nature intended it to be, women in their place. That is, dependency within the household is normal and natural. The American people are 
almost universally literate. Just about the same levels we've achieved now. I'm joking a little bit, but it, uh, up to in New England, 90, 95% almost universal, uh, slightly lower in the South, but still very high among white people in Virginia. Not only were they literate and therefore more capable of enlightenment than the vast majority of French peasants, 90% of the population are beyond the pale, but Americans, ordinary Americans are literate. Not only that, but they fought for independence and fighting that war for their freedom was an educational, enlightening experience. This is Jefferson's grand notion of a democratic enlightenment. But then that other dimension of this that Annette was emphasizing is this new image of a wholesome domesticity, a wholesome domesticity that includes enslaved people. And that this would exist until the time people re reached sufficient enlightenment that you could do something about slavery. He understood that there was not any beat. People ask, well, why didn't he fight? We were talking to someone earlier today. Why didn't he fight for, uh, fight against slavery in Virginia? Uh, he knew that there was not any, what he would call Republican, meaning a democratic solution to slavery. The Virginia legislature was not gonna vote slavery out of existence. They just weren't in the 1780s, the 1790s. I mean, historians don't like to talk about inevitability or you know, and what has to happen, but it's hard to see how it could have ended here other than the way it ended. And that was not something that he could contemplate. For him, the idea was that Virginians, the citizens of Virginians, Virginia, namely the people who voted in Virginia, which would be white males, uh, property males, had to come to some conclusion about this. They had to be the ones who ended slavery. And they would. This is the other thing that's difficult for us to believe about Jefferson, because he was, even at his time, um, for his time, an optimistic person. He really did believe in the Enlightenment. He believed in progress. Now, that's something that we don't necessarily believe that things are going to get better and better and better because we have a mm -hmm. sort of a straight line. It seems to be, you know, two steps forward, four steps back. Uh, you know, it's a zigzag. It doesn't work in sort of a straight fashion. And he thought that this, because he was very much a scientific person, and he thought about, he linked the notion of scientific advances to advances in society as a whole. You, you, you discover inoculation. You have a way to stop people from getting uh, smallpox. Then, you have vaccination, something that's less dangerous than inoculate. I mean, those kinds of scientific discoveries, the world was becoming new. And he saw the American Republic as an experiment. This is something he said we can now, we cannot, we can say now that there is, that there's nothing, we can't say now that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, there is something new under the sun. The American experiment was new and he was optimistic about it. And that would lead to progress and eventually we would end slavery, the United States would end slavery, but he could not see a multiracial society. He said whites would never give up their prejudices against blacks, black people would never forgive white people for what had happened here. How can you love a country that has treated you the way you've been treated, the way black people were treated? And eventually, they were going to have a race war. And you read this stuff now, and people, like um, he's saying here, people are appalled because we like to think that we have a multiracial society. 
well, we're multiracial in the sense that we're all here, but <laughs> not a community, not a community in the way he saw a community. We talk yeah. about family is so important to him. He sees family as the sort of basic unit of society, and you go from the family to the community, up to the state, and then to the, to the national government, all together a, a, a sort of you know, compilation, a group of families that have all the attributes that he has, an idealized family, that is to say, people who love each other. How can you be citizens together if you can't be in the same family? And we have sort of achieved that in a way, although maybe we haven't. African-American people are still fighting for citizenship, but Americans, I think in the main, for most of American history, have thought that you can have citizenship. You can have be Americans with one group here, one group there, another group there, but you can't be in my family. How can you say you're equal, but you can't be my son-in-law, you can't be my daughter-in-law, you can't you know, be in my family? And so that's the thing that, that's the, that's the stumbling block for having African Americans in the United States because he also could not see a situation where you had a large number of people who were second class citizens. You're either a citizen or you're not a citizen. I said the other night, Malcolm X, thinking of Jefferson and Malcolm X together is odd, but Malcolm X said, you know, if you are a citizen, why do you have to fight for your rights? Why does a citizen, a person who's a true citizen, have to fight for rights? Well, Jefferson is thinking, the visionary, is thinking about the future and a sort of an idealized vision of what he wants America to be, and it will be a community, a group of citizens who love each other, a group of citizens who are connected to each other, who can be in the same family. And that's inconceivable, you know, for, to think of black people. Now we say, well, what about his home and what's going on with him? He could not recommend that to the entire, to, to, you know, to the entire community. There's a letter that uh, his secretary writes to him, uh, the man who'd been his secretary when he was in France, uh, who stayed on in Europe and was in Spain. And he writes to Jefferson in 1798, and he says, you know, we can solve this problem, the racial problem. The answer is, we should all marry each other and have children. And if we were to do that, we would all, he said, I live here in Spain. And in Spain, they're darker than other Europeans, but nobody treats them badly. I mean, they're attractive people. <laughs> we would, that's what we would look like. If we were to do that, this is what we would end up with. So what do you think about that? Silence. <laughs> and the interesting thing about it is Jefferson gets this letter. It's like three months after Beverly Hemings, the oldest son, is born. So you've got to figure, you know, that hair was standing on the back of his neck. He's, what, what should we do? We should, we should marry. What do you think about that? No answer. He writes to him again. It takes a long time for letters to come back and forth across the Atlantic. So you remember I wrote to you and I said, what about everybody getting together? Silence. He writes to him three times, and he doesn't answer that specific query uh, because he can't. He could not. Um, he could not do it. It would be difficult, I think, even now for people to advocate something like that. It's only recently, if you look at commercials, 
it's only within the last seven or eight years that you see black people and white people as couples in commercials. We're in the 21st century, so it's interesting to see, to have people wonder about Jefferson, who's right. born in 1743. You know, why can't he, you know, say this? Why can't he put all of this out there? When we're not doing it, it's taking us to this point where it's still, it's still something that's commented on. And what has it taken to get us to this point? Well, it's been the exercise of state power. Mm -hmm. It's been the law. It hasn't been love. There's been a lot of love coming from a lot of quarters, uh, often from freed people after the Civil War, uh, ready to forgive their masters. Uh, what kind of reception did they get? And this is what is both beautiful and tragic about Jefferson, and I think something we need to think about. He has a very high threshold for community, for nationhood. It's not just that we have a mutual convenience arrangement where we're playing the same game by the same rules, and you can be different, and we can have a pluralistic society. In fact, that's the 20th century notion. That's been the threshold of diversity was pluralism. Uh, we have many different immigrant groups, different sects. We have different uh, racial groups. They can coexist, but... For Jefferson, the whole point of the revolution was to create a new kind of politics, not enforcing coexistence, but enabling new forms of association. And the word love, which seems so embarrassing to use with Jefferson because he lived in and presided over such a hateful world, but that's the vision he had. And that is a family of families, as Annette says, with powerful attachments and affections. And in some deep and fundamental way, that's what we feel right now, now that we have finally, after centuries of struggle and war, reached the point where we can begin to coexist in a civil fashion. So in a way, it's easy to rake Jefferson over the metaphorical coals, and it's not a bad thing, necessarily, but it's also important, I think, to reflect on what his aspirations were for a better world. A world, as Annette suggests, that progresses towards some higher form of living. It's not just that we want to enable each other to pursue selfish versions of happiness, but the whole point of having rights, being independent, is to come together in new forms of union, which is a key word for Jefferson. It's not just for our mutual convenience. It's because we recognize ourselves in each other. Can we do that across racial boundaries or national boundaries as Jefferson understood them? Because those two terms are interchangeable for Jefferson, race and nation. I think you can see his failures, and we must see them as failures from our standard, as also setting out a kind of a challenge to us. Mm -hmm. And also a statement not just about him but about the society as a whole about how we talk about pop we talk about politics we talk about republicanism we talk about democracy all those things but what is not talked about very much or talked about in the same level at the same level is white supremacy and the doctrine of white supremacy how this warps mm -hmm. all of the kinds of wonderful words that he has that he writes all of the sentiments all the things that are very optimistic uh, that is a part and parcel of the way 
the people in his community think about things. When you emancipate African Americans, what is, what is going to be done about them? Slavery was not just a system where people worked and didn't get paid. It was a system of control, of social control. And, a, and white supremacy kept people from thinking that they could live together, recognize themselves and other people. It blinded them to that. And it's something that he was fighting with, that his society, uh, that African American people had to fight against during his time period, and it's something that's continued up until this day. Uh, we talk about other kinds of ideologies, but that's one that is that has permeated America from the very, very beginning, and as I said, warped so much of, so much of our relations and so many of our hopes that we have for one another. Well, we've been enjoyed uh, talking so much, and I always want to respond when she says something, but I'm going to shut up because we'd like to bring you into the conversation. Please. Because it would... Okay, I'm sorry. Why, why couldn't Jefferson respond to the query of his, uh, his friend, William Short, about intermarriage, about doing this? Well, because he would be putting something down on paper. Well, for one thing, here's, here's my real answer, I think. <laughs> William Short was in Paris with Jefferson and Sally Hemings and James Hemings. I wonder if he did not know that something had happened between mm -hmm. them. If Jefferson had responded with what he says in notes in the state of Virginia about how they must be removed far from admixture, he looks like the ultimate hypocrite to, and he also knows, here's, this, is, I'm gonna, this is one that's really twisted. William Short's mother had two brothers, and their names were Robert and Henry Skipwith. Robert and Henry Skipwith were married to, let me do this, Anne and Tabitha Wales. Anne and Tabitha Wales were James Sim Hemings's half-sisters. So he knows that if he writes back and starts going on and on about admixture and degradation and all that kind of stuff, you're talking about your wife's brothers and sisters. You're talking about my mother's brothers. You're talking about my, my ne nephew here. So he knows all of these things. So he can't write back and say, yeah, I stand by my statement that they have to be, there has to be separation. And he sure as hell couldn't say, you know, you're right. <laughs> so this is why, this is, I think, why this works. Because at the level of theory and his intellectual life, you're talking about Jefferson and race and how he thinks about these things. But you ask, who are these people? <laughs> exactly. Who is he talking to? He's talking to somebody who knows that his family is riddled with what they call miscegenation and interracial. So it, it changes everything to know. That's how you have to know who, no. you, who the people are. It's a, it's a great question. You cannot define that boundary. That's the ultimate fallacy of his whole putative solution. If he has two nations, they don't have a frontier. They op occupy a common ground, and those families are entangled with each other. They're, in fact, the same family. They're the same family, because I would love, people ask me, you know, well, what if he were back here, if you could go back, what would you ask? Well, I hell wouldn't go back, but if he were brought, if he were brought here, 
you know, what question would I ask him? And I would ask him, are you going to make white men send their children back to Africa? Are you going to do that? Because, you know, these families in Virginia, these people are all mixed up. And so there, you're right, there, there is no boundary. The boundary you're talking about, you keep going, you're going to run up, come upon somebody who would be sending relatives away. And, and that's that, why you need to combine the uh, intellectual history, which is important, mm-hmm. and it silences him, mm-hmm. as Annette is suggesting, with the social history, the lived history involving real embodied people. Oh, you got the, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to ask a question. You're the, speak pretty loudly. You really want to yeah, yeah he's it. got to do it. Yeah, I've been in a decades-long uh, dialogue with uh, a historian named David Koenig. Oh, <laughs> El Jefe. He told me you were going to be yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> he told I was going to ambush you, too. Uh, I, uh, I've been in this dialogue with him. We went to high school here at Baltimore City College together. He, here's my two questions. First of all, Jefferson as the supreme enlightened intellectual of his time. Did he not know about the Quakers? Did he not know about that there really was, it should be an issue of no, no slavery? In other words, I understand you can't impose present day sensibilities on the past. However, for a supreme intellectual, how could you miss it? Second question, <laughs> Is with being at that sounds there. rhetorical, but go ahead. Yeah, no, but I want you to talk about his interaction with the Quakers, if there was. Right, I will. And second of all, going to Monticello, I, all we saw was an area of Hemings burials. There's not a marker. There's not a I, unless I missed it. There's not a gravestone for Sally Hemings. I mean, people have you know headstones for their dogs. How can even even then not to have that? To me, seems supremely. Just monstrous. So there's my two questions. I'd like well, both of you to reject that. I think both of them are, in a way, rhetorical in the, in the best sense of the word. I'll talk about the Quakers. And I'll uh, talk about headstones. And, and you get the headstone, unless you want the Quakers. No. I'll trade you one Quaker for... No, you do the Quakers. <laughs> you do the Quakers. Uh, the, the problem with Quakers. First of all, Jefferson comes at his ideas about slavery as a man of the Enlightenment. That's important. That's not what Quakers did. They came from the inner enlightenment, the inner light. And that is, they had a religious testimony. They knew that you weren't even supposed to use proper forms of address to the tops, to the aristocrats, people who thought they were better than you. They're radically egalitarian in a, in, in a, in a powerful Protestant Christian tradition. And they see that of God in themselves and each other. I talked about this recognition business. Well, here's the problem. That's not Jefferson's source. That's not what he's drawing on. But more immediately and importantly, Quakers were not good patriots. They couldn't be because they wouldn't fight. Unless, like Nathaniel Green, they were fighting Quakers, which is oxymoronic. Uh, And uh, not only did they not fight and had to be sent off to the Shenandoah Valley so that they wouldn't uh, collude with the enemy, um, but the center of gravity for them was uh, the London meeting. They wanted, they didn't want the war to happen. They were true citizens of the Atlantic world of the empire. And uh, it was very hard for Quakers to make the break. Now, in fact, many Quakers did come to terms with the revolution very early on in the Quaker state. 
but uh, Jefferson's view, articulated a couple of times, is that their loyalty is dodgy. Uh, Jefferson's been described himself as a halfway pacifist. He was not a full pacifist. He was all for peace, but it might take a few wars. Uh, headstones. Um, nobody knows where Sally Hemings is buried. I don't know of any graves that are Hemings graves at Monticello. Uh, they found uh, the burial site for enslaved people. They discovered that. The archaeologists discovered that a number of years ago. But they don't really know who is there. I think they have a marker now for it. For generally, but they don't yeah. know where they don't know where these people are. I mean, she there is some thought that she's buried that she was buried where she lived, which is what people used to do. Uh and that was on Main Street in um um uh, Charlottesville. But there's now a hotel over that section so yeah, that might them. be true I'm not sure that that's true because when Madison says that he's when they leave after she dies and they go to um, Ohio he said we left one son in the dust near Monticello which doesn't suggest Charlottesville mm -hmm. suggests perhaps the burial ground so if he buried his son there I mean, she's probably buried in the where other where her mother was buried, where people buried their families. You know, where in the area down at the at the at the base of the mountain. So, yeah, um, we don't know where she's buried. And if we did know where she was buried, I'm, I know there would be a headstone. Definitely, there would be a headstone there. Well, well, that would be a form of acknowledgement. I mean, you know, but, but I mean, he's dead. I mean, he's, he dies in 1826. She dies in 18, 1835. So, I mean, I, I don't, uh, and, and Monticello is gone. I mean, Monticello is sold in 1831, and Martha is up in mm -hmm. Boston. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just not, they, no. they had sort of moved some, they moved beyond this at that, at that point. Um, if you could give us a little bit of backstory on the Declaration of Independence and clarify for me how much of this is truth and how much is fiction. Jefferson widely credited with at least, if not, not writing, because there was four or five of them, I believe Franklin and right. Adams, Livingston, Sherman, all part of this committee that drafted, but he is widely credited with writing the first draft and the famous line, inalienable rights of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, is my understanding, is what was originally written, and it was back and forth, and it became life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, how much of that is true? How much is not true? And how much influence on that did the Adams, Livingston, and Franklin, who were not slave owners, have on the Declaration of Independence? So, Jefferson is widely seen as the key. Yeah, uh, Jefferson himself was upset with the editing that took place of his original draft, but we can compare all these drafts, and, and uh, uh, he's with happiness from the outset. Uh, and that's an idea that, that uh, is, of course, a very rich idea. Uh, political economists use it, that is, economists use it to describe a whole society. It's happy if it's prosperous, and there's a lot of reproduction. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, 
And but property and, as your question suggests, property and happiness are very closely connected because you can't be independent if you're not a property owner and so forth. Uh, what Jefferson said in the Declaration, of course, became, in the eyes of many Southerners, a ticking time bomb. They knew how those words could be used because Jefferson is writing in the natural rights tradition. And that is a tradition that's uh, very powerful and could lead to and justify, of course, an overthrowing the regime of slavery and white supremacy. Uh, and, of course, we've explained how Jefferson was going to finesse his way out of this, wishing happiness on his enslaved people some other place, some other time. Uh, Jefferson was so sore at the editorial changes in his draft that it was not until the 1790s when he became the culture hero of the opposition to the Washington and Adams administrations that he became known as the author uh, the first public references in 1783 from Ezra Stiles, a preacher in Connecticut. Uh, it's when the Republicans need somebody to pit against George Washington and his authority that, that his uh, uh, draftsmanship is acknowledged. Later on, and I think you probably know most of this, uh, the declaration, his, he takes pride in being author, and that's on his tombstone, getting back to tombstones. Uh, yet, uh, so that's one of the one of the things that is uh, centrally important to him. Uh, uh, but uh, no, I don't know what I was going to say. Something interesting about this. Well, no, but I mean, and yeah, yeah, no, uh, none yeah. of them had time for this kind of nonsense. No, no, he's he's they're busy doing other stuff, and he's the one who does this. And that's I just wanted to pick up on the, this notion that you talked about the Confederacy, how. Uh, or the Southerners, how are frightened of all of this, and Alexander Stevens in the Cornerstone speech basically says, we reject Jefferson. I mean, that's what he said. You know, it's not, we don't believe that all men are created equal. Uh, that's a fallacy. And, you know, the African race was meant for slavery, blah, 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 blah. So it's been used by a lot of different people <laughs> uh, to, you know, to make a point, points good and bad. And I think his uh, inv invocation of the natural rights tradition is really important because that's what Lincoln seizes on. And uh, we need to keep in mind that the progress Jefferson hoped for didn't take place. And the 19th century rejected natural rights uh, and thought it was, as Jeremy Bentham put it, nonsense upon stilts. What is it? Where is it? What does it mean? It means nothing. Well, it meant everything to Lincoln and it became the... The, the shining light, the bright idea to carry forward. The 18th century survived into the 20th, thanks to Abraham Lincoln. Um, oh, you got the, the so, person got the mic. Here. So I have a question that probably can't be answered, but it's sort of interesting to guess and conjecture. And that is, I wonder what someone like Jefferson would think about what's going on in our country today you know, politically, and with the elections that are going on, and all the, the, all the family fathers, actually. I, I, I don't know if you'd want to talk about that or not. We'll talk about anything. Uh, <laughs> there is, there is a, 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 a good short answer, and it's apropos. Uh, Jefferson and everyone in his generation hated partisanship, even though they invented the parties as we know them. So they got a problem. Uh, but they certainly thought 
that factiousness, partisanship, was the negation of a dedication to the public good. It's just, it's a nation within a nation. And that's the dream of democracy or republicanism, is that we would transcend those differences. And that seems naive, uh, and it is naive, and conflict management is the business of politics. But we still like to think there's some higher goals that inform our politics and that shape it. And that's why Jefferson is so crucial in our national imagination, because we use that language in the Declaration, which uh, might not have been taken too seriously by his colleagues. It wasn't really immediately. But those words have lasted, and we can, we can use them. And so the Declaration is, is as important for the way it's been received and used over the, the years as it is in the moment of creation. Except, of course, when we tell the creation story, the Declaration is important. So that's not immediately responsive. The first part was uh, he would not recognize what's happening now. There's a, an expression that the past is a foreign country. It's, uh, it, you, need a, you need a passport, and we write passports for people so they can read our books and understand that foreign country. Well, the future is a foreign country, too. And uh, Jefferson would have been totally lost. whether uh, you have an opinion as to how Jefferson would have acted had he lived during the Civil War. What position you would have taken, whether he both. would have been torn, obviously. Yeah, I, I had a lecture assignment. Who was, uh, was Thomas Jefferson responsive, responsible for the Civil War? And I said, what side, what side he would have taken, how he would have reacted? Well, I think the best way to answer that is to look at his response to the Missouri crisis. And if, for those of you who don't study the Missouri crisis, it's the uh, admission of Missouri into the Union in a crisis that over from 1819 to 21, uh, and would it come into the Union as a slave state or not? And Jefferson, the people who wanted to keep slavery out were called restrictionists, restricting the spread of slavery, because that, of course, was ultimately Abraham Lincoln's and the Republican solution. Uh, they campaigned on the platform of no more slave states. Uh, when it, Jefferson became aware of the Missouri crisis, it was, as he described it, like uh, the, the death knell of the Union. It was like a, a, a fire had broken out, a conflagration, and he was awoken from his slumbers and was horrified. Uh, for him, the breakup of the Union would have negated the whole point of the American Revolution. But, to drop the other shoe, he probably would have died on the Virginia side. Yeah. Well, yeah, his, well, the thing, well, it, it depends, because, this is a historical answer, his grandson didn't want to go out. He was a member of the legislature, did not want um, secession. Uh, and argued against secession. Uh, and you know, it was vociferous about that. Uh, it took, well, most of it, a lot of Virginians didn't want to go out. So you sort of wonder what would have happened if he had been alive and had argued against it, as with, with the number, like his grandson and other people did. Uh, it would have been an excruciating thing for him because, as he said, it would have made the whole American Revolution 
uh, you know, it, it would have been worthless. And what he feared, one of the reasons that he wanted a union and wanted America to go pretty much from sea to shining sea is that he resented or he, he feared the influence of Europeans on the American continent. And to think of the Confederacy going to England mm. to ask, ask for support would have just, you know, his head would have exploded. So it, it's, it's a really, really tough situation. But, you know, in the end, if Virginia, I, I would say if, if Virginia went the course, if he and Madison, because we were assuming Madison would have been alive too, uh, if they had argued against going out, just like Jefferson's grandson did, he might have been persuasive. The two of them might have been persuasive. Um, if they weren't, he would have been a Virginian. And that, that pretty, like we know, but you know. Um, I'd like to follow up um, with the woman just on her question, and I have two questions. The first one is, um, considering Jefferson's opinions on state rights, my UVA graduate husband and I have had long discussions about what Jefferson's um, opinions would be now and today. He, he feels that he would have evolved and would not be the person that he may have been um, back when he believed in you know, strong states' rights and not a strong um, presidency. And then I'll ask the question yeah. after. Oh, oh, okay, I'll start on that at least. Uh, I think we mistake him as a states' rightser, and we think, of course, of uh, Jim Crow and segregation and what states' rights has meant in the 20th century and what it meant in the run-up to the Civil War. Of course, uh, those arguments that the states were sovereign. Uh, Jefferson's, the whole point for Jefferson, think of Jefferson with a small f, as a small f federalist. He was, his democracy demanded participation at every level. Now, those levels from the township or the ward or the village on up to the county state union, the integrity and independence of each of those units was critical. You had to have rights that were, that were enjoyed and secured at that level, all the way down to his plantation where nobody could mess with it. Uh, but the point of having rights and exercising them is then to form unions. So the whole point of states is that they are drawn to each other, recognizing their common interests, both in the mundane sense of collective security, because it's a dangerous world, but also in that sense of reciprocal recognition of their national identity. We're fellow Americans. We're countrymen. And we cherish the same fundamental things. The state was never an end in itself for Jefferson. And if it had been, it would have been a tragic negation of his whole project. So he's not a libertarian, he's not a states' rightser, though he's easily enlisted in the cause of people who support those positions today. And the second question involves um, current. Uh, we hear so much today about Woodrow Wilson, Robert E. Lee, taking names off of monuments, off of schools, etc. How do you all feel personally about um, what's been under discussion now? You want me to do this? <laughs> well, I mean, I've been asked about this a lot. Um, generally, I think I was asked about this by Inside Higher Education. My answer was, it depends on the person. 
I mean, it's, it's got to be a case-by-case -case basis, and people don't like case-by-case -case basis, but we draw lines all the time. The speed limit is 65, not 105. It's not what, there's some people who drive better at 105, and some people drive at 65, but we have to come to some sort of agreement, sort of general understanding about what to do. So you could look at the people and the individual people and decide what's best. Now, um, I guess it was, well, Princeton kept Wilson, and, and Yale is keeping Calhoun. I, in, in this, I had said that I, did, I could let Calhoun go. <laughs> Because, I mean, you know, I mean, Wilson, to me, if I, the line drawing, Wilson made modern Princeton. Princeton was just sort of like a you know, country club, and he came in, changed the curriculum, made it what a modern, what it, you can't have modern Princeton without him. You don't have it without him. He was a professor there. He's a president there. He's the president of the United States. He started, you know, the, um, the League of Nations and all of this. I could see why they don't want to get rid of him. That one, I would, that's a tougher question for me. Calhoun went to Yale. I mean, he doesn't, you know, mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I, they're going to keep him, but he could go. That was an example of going. Robert E. Lee, the Confederates, you know, when my husband and I were the Little League, we, we, we were the manager and the um, uh, coach of our son's Little League team. And one of the things we noticed is that nobody ever won. Everybody got a trophy. <laughs> Everybody got a trophy. And I think when you lose the war, you don't get to put your statues up. You don't get to put your flag up. Well, You've lost the war. <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's a problem. Museums, you can have all these things, but in the public sphere, I think that there's a problem with having... Um, you know, soldiers and markers of people who were defeated in the war in the public sphere. I think it, it, it's an insult. Not all, it's, people think about it in terms of African Americans, people who were fighting to preserve the system of slavery, but Union soldiers. Yeah, sure. Union soldiers died. I mean, they may have had some sort of, David Blight has written this book about race and reunion, how the people came together, the Confederates and the, the Union soldiers came together, but you can't you can't absolve, you can't come to rapprochement for people who are dead. The Union soldiers who died didn't give permission for uh, reconciliation. So uh, there, I think there's less a reason to, uh, to remove, I mean, to, to keep the statues of people. Um, Wilson, as I said, there might be a candidate for being kept because of the reasons that I said, Calhoun, you know, what did he do for Yale? I mean, and a lot of it is that people, they were put there. They have a stained glass picture of him mm. and slaves in a mm. cotton field or something like that. Some, something really, really retrograde. I don't think they need that. Uh, that could go. But in the Confederates, I think it's a different, it's a different issue because I, I think when you, you didn't win, you, that's... Well, of course, that's, that, that's your way of saying they did win the culture wars in some way. Yeah, and they, they, they still win it in terms of reenactments, and it should be a national shame. Uh, we're having this problem, not we, because I no longer live in Charlottesville, but in my old hometown where the Lee and Jackson statues are prominent mm -hmm. downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you have to ask the question of when were the statues put up and for what purpose? 
there is a historic landscape that should be preserved. And, and uh, uh, even if you imagine in the immediate aftermath of war, memorials being put up to, okay. to dead men, okay. you can see that. But these were put up in the era of Jim Crow to intimidate African Americans in Charlottesville. They have no right to be there, or if they're going to be there, they better be interpreted in terms of what they were doing in the time they were built. And of course, you can ask by extension, what are they doing now? Yeah, I mean, well, it's, I didn't mean it's, to get so loud. But. Here <laughs> What's that? Here we no, my old school. Yeah. Oh, boo. Yeah. yeah. So is Robert E. Lee a greater traitor to the United States than Denny Gordon? Uh, yeah, he, he is. He is. Uh, I'm yes. for a statue to Traveler. <laughs> <laughs> the horse. He was a good horse. Yeah. We named a whole section of our book after him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay, one quick last question. Oh my God, two. In the back. I just wanted to ask about um, Jefferson's uh, foreign policy mm. and what he will make of uh, the current foreign policy at the moment. Just uh, generally, <laughs> no, you don't have anything. The current, the um, yeah, U.S. Uh, current foreign policy. I know he had some uh, mm -hmm. incursions into the North Africa and the rest of it. Oh but, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Barbary pirates. Barbary pirates, yeah. yeah. Sure. But generally, just his foreign policy and what he would make of the you know current U.S. foreign policy. Well, the the first thing to say, and and I invite Thank Annette you. to take over at any time, uh, is that. The United States was a second or third rate power, and you might say no power at all in the early period. Uh, Jefferson was uh, flexing a very small muscle in the North African incursions, uh, and it was because, and this is the real takeaway from that, the United States had to prove itself internationally. It no longer had the protection of the British Empire. The great story of post-war foreign policy is what does a set of foreign colonies utterly dependent on the metropolis of the old empire and continuing to be dependent on that, the trade centered in Britain and in Europe, what does it do to create a policy that will, that will uh, enrich the country, sustain its prosperity and population, when it no longer has the lucrative trade routes open to it that it once did. And here you might say uh, there's some enterprising innovation moving into the South Asian trade, eventually into East Asia, of course, uh, eventually uh, taking, uh, reaping the harvest in, uh, in Latin America with the revolutions. Uh, the United States did all right, but in the short term, the great problem was uh, uh, what I might call imperial deprivation syndrome. What do you do without the empire? Yeah. There, there, as you said, there was not very much, not many muscles to flex there. A lot of people think uh, that he uh, bought a Koran to study up on Islam to figure out what to do uh, in North Africa. He actually bought a Koran uh, when he was a law student uh, because it was a system of law, and he was interested in all systems of law. So the Barbary pirates were pirates. It was not a, I mean, there's, I'm mentioning this because very often people ask the question and there's, and you read in the interpretation that his foreign policy, we're talking about the Middle East, grows out of some sort of anti-Islamic no. uh, notion on his part. 
and uh, that he learned all this, as I, as I said, because he bought a Koran and thought, you know, read up on it. But that's not, that wasn't the truth. Uh, the Barbary, he was fighting the Barbary pirates because they were pirates, uh, not because of any religious view about it. So he, he wouldn't, again, this is back to the question before, he would not be able to imagine. He thought America was going to be the strongest nation in the world. He thought it was the strongest nation in the world, but he meant strong in terms of the people and the loyalty of the people, not in terms of arms. He wouldn't, this whole notion of superpower, mm. uh, you know, of a nation that can sort of strike anywhere in the world. No. It, he would no. Uh, that's not, would have, no. that would have frightened him. And the CIA and, I mean, the whole, I mean, all the, the whole apparatus, the whole security apparatus would have been odd to him. Right. His vision of empire is what you might call reproductive imperialism, that is settlement spreading across the continent. And the immediate enemies and threats on the frontier were Native Americans and their imperial sponsors. Those were the kind of wars that to, to, to enable settlement that the early American administrations were willing to, to fight. But basically the posture that uh, Annette's talking about, strongest government on earth, we could resist any assault from abroad. That doesn't mean we're going to go out we're looking go for... Place. Yeah. You don't go looking for things. You go looking for trade. And this is another part of the mm -hmm. somewhat naivete that people would say about Jefferson. And if everybody's trading together, then there could be comedy and friendliness. Uh, there's no reason to fight if people just keep to you know, doing the Don't you the think commerce is the answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Well, let's thank our guests. <laughs>